0: If you have your Bible, open up please to first John chapter two. And I'm going to read our text for the day. We're taking one more break here from our Genesis sermon series, which we'll resume next Sunday. But this morning I'll be preaching from first John chapter two verses twelve through fourteen. And so I'd like to read that, and then I'll pray, and we'll get started. This is the Word of God. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. the evil one. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, it is a great privilege to be able to open up the Bible and read word from You today. And we would hope that it wouldn't be like any other reading that we do that this would be special. We ask that you would fill your children with your Holy Spirit now so that we can hear your word as we should hear it, understand what we need to understand, and even believe what we need to believe. So as we do the natural work of reading, we pray that you would grant us the spiritual ability to understand what we're reading. And I pray that it would it would touch hearts today. That it would do a great work in us and transform us and make us more like your Son, Jesus Christ. So as this year draws to a close, we ask for your great help. And that your help would come From your word. By your spirit. And we pray these things. In the great name of your son. Jesus. Amen. So I've done something the past. Two years at the end of the year. In our last Sunday together. And I'd like to keep that up again. This year. And I'd like to close this year. 2013 with a sermon that does this or has this as the goal, to encourage you and to encourage myself to read our Bibles more. That's it. That is the goal today. That is the, the motive behind choosing this text and preaching this sermon is as the end of the year comes to a close, I want to encourage all of you again to read your Bibles more. For many of you, the end of the year is a time of year where you make resolutions. Some of you make resolutions for the next year. Some of you have totally given up on making resolutions. Some of you have given up on making resolutions because, like me, you've made resolutions and you've broken them in a matter of hours, and that frustration has led you to say, "You know what? I'm 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 done making resolutions or promises to myself or to God or to others about what I'm going to do in this in this next year." But if you are like me, uh, there's something about this time of year—the the dawn, the brink of the new year—where I just sort of find myself evaluating the last year. I think about what I'm. Not happy about and what I'd like to see change and and what I'd like to work on this year that I didn't work on enough last year. Things I'd like to see go differently. Sort of evaluate my year and look ahead to the new year with some ideas of what I hope to see God do. So, in case some of you are thinking that way, this would play right into that because the encouragement I want to bring home is for each of us to read our bible more. And that's what brings us to 1 John chapter 2 verses 12 through 14. Now remember this, bible reading and prayer I've said this many times, bible reading and prayer are interdependent. You cannot have one without the other. Where there's bible reading, there's got to be prayer. And where there's prayer, there's got to be Bible reading. They work together. Bible reading and prayer work together as these twin means of grace that God uses to conform us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says, For those whom God foreknew... He also predestined to be, this is that phrase I just used, conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So if you're a Christian here today, this is what Paul is saying about you in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. He's saying that God has saved you, but he's also saving you. God saved you from your sin, but He's also sanctifying you. God brought a, a big change to you from the inside out, took your heart of stone, gave you a heart of flesh, gave you ears to hear, gave you a mind to conceive and understand. God did that, and that happened when you were converted, born again, saved, place your faith in Christ, all describing the same event in your life, Christian. But God's not done with you. It's not this one-time work, and now you're just left on your own to live your life the way you want to live your life. God has both saved us and we're being saved. He's sanctifying us. He's changing us. Now, here specifically is what God is doing. It says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. That means that if you're a Christian, that means that God has known you long before you knew him. He knew you, set his affection on you, loved you, knew you intimately, knew you personally, chose you before the foundations of the world. And he predestined, you know this, to save you, but he also predestined to sanctify you. He predestined for the rest of your time on this earth, He predestined to conform you into the image of His Son. It means that God has decided that for however many days He has ordained that you're going to live on this earth, that the work that He's going to be doing in you is He's going to make you more like Jesus. To think like Jesus, to talk like Jesus, to act like Jesus. To bring God glory. To honor Him. And God is doing that work in us for our entire life. And so the way that connects to this sermon, and what we're talking about this morning, is that reading the Bible and prayer are probably the greatest means of grace that God uses to conform us into the image of His Son. You're going to work against God's work in your life or you're going to work with God's work in your life? You're going to grieve the Holy Spirit or you're going to work with the Holy Spirit? You're going to be disobedient or are you going to be obedient? Well, the way you respond to God's sanctifying work in your heart primarily is by taking hold of these twin means of grace. Reading your Bible and prayer. The Bible, you hear them working together. The Bible teaches us to pray, teaches us how to pray, teaches us what to pray for, teaches us the basis for prayer, encourages us to pray because God is listening to our prayers. So the Bible is teaching us all about prayer. And then prayer applies the Bible. Prayer is applying the Bible. When we pray, we're applying God's word to us, to others. We're repeating the Bible back to God. We are pleading for help from God to understand the Bible and to live out the Bible. So we must do both. We must pray and read our Bible. And your goal would need to be to grow in both. My encouragement would be for you to grow in both. If you settle this year to just grow in one, you won't grow at all. And the reason that I can encourage all of you to read your Bible more is because I know that none of you read your Bible enough. That none of you read your Bible enough. I don't say that because I have in mind this, this amount of Bible reading that is sufficient and I know that you're just rotten and don't do it. I say that because it's never enough. It's never enough. However much you read God's word, however much you study God's word, it's never enough. Not one of you is going to look back on your life and say, you know, I just wish if I could do it all over again, I would have read my Bible less. (laughs) You're not going to say that. You're not going to think that you may think. I wish I would have read my Bible more. And we want to live, incidentally, Jonathan Edwards when he was about 21 years old, wrote about 70 resolutions. And one of them was to not ever do anything that he would not be ashamed to do the last hour of his life. That's a resolution. Something like reading your Bible, reading God's Word, but don't just read your Bible. Don't say, I'm good on prayer. This year, the focus is Bible reading. I can shelf the prayer. I'm dynamite when it comes to prayer. My Bible reading could use some work. Because if you do that, you actually won't, won't grow in your Bible reading. And don't say, you know, I actually read my Bible enough. I've had enough of that. But I really want to be fervent in my prayer. That's going to be my focus. You can't have one without the other. Bible reading and prayer. So first John chapter two, verses twelve through fourteen, let me read it again, and then we'll talk about how this text encourages us to read our Bibles more. I am writing to you little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So there's three peoples that Paul is talking to. John, I'm sorry. Do you hear that? There's three different groups of people. Little children he addresses twice or children. Fathers he addresses twice. And young men he addresses twice. There's some different theories as to who John has in mind when he says these. Some would suggest that these titles represent various stages of maturity in the life of a Christian. So a little child, the little children, are those who are new in the faith. Young men are those who are young in the faith. Fathers are those who are mature in the faith. I don't think that's who John has in mind. I think this is who he has in mind. I think in verse verse 12 and verse 13, when he addresses children and little children, that title means all believers. And the reason I think John means all believers is because children or little children is one of his favorite titles in this book that he uses when he's talking to all believers. So as he's writing this letter, he'll say, as he's addressing all believers, he'll call them either beloved or children or little children. So I think he's speaking generally to all Christians When he says little children and children. And I think when he addresses young men and fathers. He means just that. He means those who are young. And who are in the faith. And those who are older. And who are in the faith. So when he says little children. All believers. Young men. Those of you who are young in age. In the faith. Fathers. Those of you men and women who are older in the faith. Now, for our focus, I'd like to zoom in on verse 14. Specifically, the last part of verse 14. Let me read it again. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, I think that John, in verse 14, when he speaks to young men, answers a question that might be brought up when we read his address to the young men in verse 13. This is what I mean. He's addressed young men before, back up in verse 13, but he said less then. The first time he addressed the young men, he said I am writing to you young men look at 13b I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one Now that is a big statement I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one That's a that's a huge accomplishment who wouldn't want to overcome the evil one? He's talking about Satan, the devil, the dragon. Young man, he says, you have overcome the evil one. He's saying you have won. You've defeated. You have victory. Everyone wants to know, how do we have that kind of victory? All of us want to overcome. All of us want victory. All of us want to win. Some of you may say or think, no, I'm not interested in that. That may even sound kind of proud to you. I'm not interested in overcoming. I'm not interested in winning. I'm not interested in victory. Well, let me say it negatively. Are you interested in losing? Nobody likes to lose at anything. None of you enjoy losing. None of you want to be defeated. None of you want to be conquered. Specifically, if we're talking about us and God's arch enemy. How do we overcome the evil one? Now, that might be the question when you read verse 13. And I think John answers it in verse 14 when he says more to the young men than you have overcome the evil one. He actually says how they've overcome the evil one, because he gives us insight into another quality of these young men that is enabling them to overcome the evil one. What does he say? I write to you, young men, because you are strong. So how can these humans overcome the dragon? How can the natural overcome the supernatural? How do they, how might we overcome the evil one? Well, the first thing John says is you'd need to be strong. You'd need to be strong. Overcoming the evil one is not a task for the weak. It's a task for the strong. He is a strong man. And his strength will need to be matched. And then some. So we're not surprised. When he says that these young men who have overcome the evil one are strong. But we might be surprised when John tells us how they are strong. What is it that makes these young men strong? You are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. So how are they strong? The word of God abides in them. This should lead those of you who consider yourselves to be young men and young women, does the Word of God abide in you? Do you think you fall into this category that John has in mind? Are you a young man, a young woman, younger man, a younger woman? Before we apply this generally to all of us, those of you who are young should specifically consider does the word of God abide in me? Am I that kind of strong? Are you strong in the world? Or are you strong in the word? Is there different? And you can be strong in the world and not strong in the word. You can be strong by earthly, worldly measures. And you can be weak in the word. And you can be weak spiritually. That means that you can be strong in the world's eyes. And you can be being overcome by the evil one. Often and not even knowing it. Just willing pray to your great enemy. Or you could be strong in the word. Those are the options. So ask yourself, are you strong in the world or are you strong in the Word? Are you merely successful? You have lots of accomplishments, accolades, and you've achieved much in this lifetime. You're powerful. You are persuasive. You are popular. You are wealthy. None of these things are necessarily bad, but none of these things are ultimate. And you can have any number of these things or all of these things and still not be as strong as you think you are because you may just be strong in the world and not strong in the Word. So ask yourself, are you strong and are you strong in the right way? Or do you need to grow in your strength in God's Word? And the way you rate, if we're going along with John here, the way you rate, okay, how strong am I in the Word? Do I have the strength that is able to overcome the evil one? The question is, does the Word of God abide in me? Does the Word of God abide in me? What does that mean? Do you read God's Word? That's the... That's the minimum. The Word of God abiding in us does not mean that merely we read God's Word, but it means at least that we read God's Word. So if we don't read God's Word, it's definitely not abiding in us. But it's not just to read God's Word, it's to know God's Word. It's to study God's Word. Some of you may just read God's Word, but you're not actually thinking about God's Word. Christians are notorious for this, right? You read your bible. of course I read my bible How could you ask me such a thing I read I read my bible every day I read four chapters a day I read from the prophets I read from the psalms I read from the new testament I read poetry I read from four different sections and I've got my list I've checked it off every day this year the year's almost done But if I ask you on any given day in the evening what did you read in the morning You'd have to go find your checklist. You'd have to look up the date. And you'd have to, because this is a clue. I do this. It's a clue that you didn't actually even think about what you read. You just read it. And you read it to get that guilt off your shoulders, right? Because you'd gone a few days without reading God's Word. And so that monkey was on your back now. And how do you get the monkey off? you go check the list. It's like a rung on the ladder that you've got propped up to heaven. So check. I read God's Word. Oh, I feel better now. I feel better. What did you read? I have no idea. But I just feel better now. I feel good. What have you done? You've just merely read God's Word. Are you any closer to God's Word abiding in you? Probably not. So we're not there yet yet. God's Word is not abiding in us if we're just talking about sticking to our Bible reading plan. I love Bible reading plans and I hate Bible reading plans. I love them and then they become an idol and I've got to get rid of them. I love them and then they become an idol and I've got to get rid of them. Because I end up just reading God's Word and not actually thinking about God's Word. Applying God's word. Studying God's word. So do you read God's word? Do you know God's word? Do you study God's word? As you live your life, does God's word come to mind? Is it in you in that kind of way? So that when you are facing a decision, you have scripture come to mind. I mean, Maybe sometimes you've got to Google your problem or you've got to go to a book or you've got to go to a concordance, but... Many times you just have scripture that comes to mind when you're facing anything and everything in your life. Is that happening? That's moving closer to the Word of God abiding in us. Does, do the decisions you make, does the way you live your life, does the way you spend your time, do those things you seek for entertainment, the way you have carry out your conversations, the things you put on your task list, the goals that you set, is that flowing from a rootedness In God's word. Or is it detached? Because the kind of strength. That John is talking about. That enables you and I. To overcome the evil one. Is the word of God. Abiding in us. So the foundational observation. If it's not clear. The foundational observation. We have here quickly. Is that your strength. To overcome the evil one comes from having the Word of God abide in you. And now let's talk about that more specifically. What is the work of the evil one? What is it that the enemy seeks to do with God's people? Specifically, how is he trying to destroy God's people? How is he trying to ruin your life? How is he trying to steal your joy? How is he trying to take you away from Christ? What is it that the evil one is doing? And then how does the word of God abiding in us enable us to have the strength to overcome the enemy? So let's look at two activities of Satan. There are basically two tricks that he uses two tactics he doesn't have this enormous repertoire that he uses and draws from in his war against God's children and God's people the reason he doesn't have that is because he doesn't need to he's found two things that work super well over and over and over again and so there's no new tricks Christians keep falling for them Over and over and over again, ever since Adam and Eve, where we see what becomes paradigmatic for all Christians, it works. And so he keeps using these tactics against God's people. And there's just two main activities of this dragon. Accusation and temptation. And almost everything that He does falls into one of these categories. He accuses me and He tempts me. I fall prey to His accusation and His temptation. So number one, let's look at accusation. Number one, accusation. Let me read a couple of verses. Zechariah 3.1 then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. There it is, accusation. And then in Revelation twelve ten through 11 And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God And the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him. They've conquered him, just like John's talking about overcoming him in our text. How have they conquered him? By the blood of the lamb and by the word, there's the word again of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So one of the names for Satan is the accuser and one of his great weapons is accusation. In Zechariah 3.1, the prophet Zechariah is given this vision and he sees Joshua, man of God, and he's standing before God. There's someone else there. And it's Satan. And Satan is accusing Joshua. And then John is given this vision. That he writes about. In the book of Revelation. Regarding the future. And there he names Satan. The accuser of our brothers. And what is it that he is doing? What is it that he has done? Who accuses them. Day and night. Before our God. So. Number one tactic of Satan where he tries to overcome Christians is accusation. Here's how I understand this. Let me me try to create for us a, a picture of what it is that we are talking about. Apparently, as we read God's Word, we see that Satan is permitted into this heavenly courtroom. If you will, that's the picture that we have in the Bible. There's this heavenly courtroom. And God is there and God is there as the judge. And we are there and will be there standing before God, the judge. And there's another who is there. And that is the accuser. And he is part of this biblical story. He is part of the courtroom drama that unfolds. He's not outside somewhere. He's right there in the thick of it. He's in the courtroom. And he stands there and accuses Christians of spiritual crimes before God. So he stands in this heavenly courtroom and he accuses Christians specifically. Not just all people. Not those he owns. But he's after Christians. God's children. And what is he doing? He's accusing them. He's accusing you. Accusing me of spiritual crimes before God. And he is delighting in the thought of God destroying us based on our crimes against God. He's giddy at the thought of God destroying us and condemning us because of who we are and what we've done. And so from his nature, he stands there and he brings up yours and mine. He brings up our spiritual crimes against God now he has no real power who has the power in the courtroom the judge has the power he's there as a prosecutor he's there as a prosecutor and he is appealing to God's justness and righteousness that's what he's appealing to God, you are a good God and a just God and a righteous God. And you, I've read it, God, you punish the evil doer. And this man is an evil doer. This woman is an evil doer. They are wicked and have sinned against you. So his accusations are there appealing to the justness and the righteousness of God, making a case for our condemnation. That is the courtroom drama that is unfolding and will unfold as we stand before God the judge and our accuser stands there and accuses us of spiritual crimes before God. Now, some of you know that is happening because you read it in God's Word and some of you know the oppression spiritually, mentally, emotionally that comes from knowing these accusations that the enemy, Is putting on you. You felt the weight of this. You felt the unrelieving guilt of this. You felt the reminders of this, the memories of this, the things you've done that you cannot undo, the history you've written that you cannot rewrite. The mistakes you've made that you can't go back and do again. Some of you are haunted by the accusations of this dragon. Now, my understanding is that many of the dragon's accusations, perhaps all of them are true. This is a twist. Because this just goes from bad to worse. My understanding is that the accuser, the dragon, is not drumming up false charges against Christians. That, That you and I are not victims of false accusations. My understanding is that my accuser is in this heavenly courtroom and he is saying, Eric sinned. Eric is disobedient. Eric is indifferent to you. Eric just disregarded you. Did you hear what came out of Eric's mouth? Did you see what Eric did? Are you seeing Eric's behavior? Do you see Eric's selfishness? Do you see this child of yours? He doesn't need to make anything up. I give him plenty of material. Plenty of material. There's no need for him to make up accusations. I know my heart. I know my thoughts. I know my words. I know my actions. This is what he draws up. This is what he points to. So how do we overcome that? Those accusations are painful, aren't they? And many of them are true, aren't they? How will we overcome? Well, we're not, if this is our understanding we're not going to argue with the dragon. But I think this is what we spend a lot of our time doing. That maybe this will be helpful for some of you. Should we talk about the word of God abiding in me so that I may overcome the evil one? I think if we spend a lot of our time misunderstanding and thinking that they're false accusations, I am not that bad. I'm good. This isn't how God deals with the accusations of the dragon. God doesn't say untrue, untrue, untrue. They're not that bad. They're not that wicked. They're good. That isn't how God deals with it. That's not how He faces these accusations. That is not how the drama unfolds. It's not denying the accusations that the enemy may make about the sinfulness of our sin. We agree with His accusation. We agree with it. That's what confession is. When you and I confess sin, it's agreeing with God. It's not letting God in on our sin. That's not what confession is. God is not in heaven saying, oh, I had no idea. You, you? You said what? You did what? Well, thank you for telling. This is not God is not being enlightened by our confession. He's told us we're sinful. What do we do when we confess? We agree with God. We're agreeing with but God, God's with what God says we have done, and who God says that we are. There is no need to deny the accusations of our enemy. God doesn't deny it. God's response to those accusations is, "I, I know." I, I, Isaiah chapter one: My faithful city has become whores. Not going to argue with you. You're right. I am faithful and they are faithless. We try to argue. I'm not bad. Look at the good things that I've done. This is how we try to deal with the accusation. This is how we try to overcome the evil one. And friends, this is the wrong way to fight the battle. Well, here I am. I'm sinful. The scale is tipped down. I'll just tip the scale the other way with all my good. And the good that I do. And the good that I say. And the good that I think. And I'll deny my sinfulness. This is not the way to fight this battle. Look at the good I've done. Look at the children I've raised. Look at the home I keep. Look at my productivity. Look how I've broken the cycle. Listen to my sermons. Look how many people I've helped. Look at my tireless service. denying the accusations. I'm really not that bad. I'm good, you see. I'm trying to tip the scales It's where we begin boasting. This is the pride of life. We begin bragging. We become dishwashers that only clean the outside of the cups. We're just polishing our idols, interested in upholding our reputation, exercises in futility. The core belief is I'm not that bad. Or I don't want others to know I'm not bad. I don't want God to know I'm that bad. So I'll just hold the perception that I'm really good. What kinds of things do you get angry at? You get angry when your weaknesses are exposed. You get angry when your failures are exposed. Get angry when your lack of control is exposed. My wife and I have talked about this. Are we more prone to be tempted to anger when our children throw a fit in our living room or when they throw a fit in Target? In Target. It's weird, isn't it? The blood boils a little differently in Target. Why? Because people are watching. People are watching. And my reputation is really important, I think. What kind of parent would raise a child to throw a fit like that? What are they, swimming on the floor? (laughs) (laughs) Embarrassed, right? Embarrassed. Get your stuff, guys. We're out of here. What's going on? Why? Why am I reacting differently? Why am I upset? They're messing up my idol. I'm trying to balance the scales. The way I'm trying to overcome the evil one saying not true, not true, not true. I'm not a failure. I'm not wicked. I'm not sinful. I'm good. I'm great. Look at my family. Look at my kids. Look at my marriage. Look at my car. Look at my home. Look at my church. Look what I've done. What is all of that trying to do? Do I have hope in that? Am I resting in that? Is that what I want people to see? Is that what I'm angry when people don't see? Am I angry that someone might get the wrong impression that I'm not as good as I think that I am? See, if you agree with these accusations, and we don't fight the battle that way, we become less concerned with this reputation. So we don't argue. We don't argue with the enemy. Well, we know from John that we have to be strong and we know our strength is from the word of God abiding in us. So we need to remember what we've learned. We need to remember what we're learning in the word of God. So here's the word of God. Here's the truth that needs to be abiding in us if we're going to be able to overcome the accusations of the evil one. It is namely this. That while there is an accuser in this heavenly courtroom, and while his accusations, many of them, may be true, there is not just an accuser in heaven on our behalf, there is an advocate in this heavenly courtroom on our behalf. And that advocate is the Lord Jesus Christ. So I don't have to ignore this. I don't have to dismiss this. I don't have to pretend it's not true. I don't have to pretend that I'm really better than I am. I don't have to do that. You can say, true, I am a sinner. I do not deserve God. I do not deserve one blessing. I do not deserve a gift. I do not deserve these things. True, true, true. Also true. I look to Jesus. There is not just one in heaven who is accusing me. There is one in heaven who is advocating for me. And this is what John had told these very same readers just a few verses earlier in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin. So there it is. Right? We're set up now to hear something. God says, Don't sin, but you do sin. You accuse yourself. Satan accuses you. You know it's true. Are you going to despair? What will be the result of these true accusations? John anticipates what may be the result, the resulting despair. And he reminds us of something. We, if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, the righteous Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the truth. This is the word of God that must be abiding in us if we will overcome the accusations of the evil one. Two things John says. Number one, Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. That means He is the wrath-satisfying sacrifice. That means when we say that Jesus is my propitiation, we mean that until Jesus, I was an object of God's wrath. I was storing up... These are just verses I'm putting into words for us. I was storing up wrath for myself. I was a disobedient sinner. And I was destined for the wrath of God. And then Jesus came and was my propitiation, my wrath satisfying sacrifice. That means that Jesus gave himself, sacrificed himself, died in my place, and satisfied the wrath of God. So God's wrath now I'm free. God's wrath may not be poured out on me because it was poured out on Jesus in my place. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. God was, make no mistake, God is angry over sin. God hates sin. God, you've heard the expression, God hates sin but loves the sinner. That is not what the Bible teaches God does hate sin, and God does love the sinner, but God also hates the sinner. That's crucial. That's the trouble we're in, again. God hates sin, and He hates the sinner. Sin is not something that is somehow detached from you that God is upset with, but you're just a victim of it. You're the one who does it. You're a victim and a perpetrator of evil. And God is angry over this. And here's how God's anger works because He's holy and righteous and just. He never swallows His wrath. He never just extinguishes His wrath. He never sweeps it under the carpet. He, never, he can't. He's holy and righteous and He is angry over sin. God's wrath must be spent. God's wrath must be exhausted. And all of us, As sinners deserve the wrath of God. And it works only one of two ways. Either God will pour out his wrath on you, or God has poured out his wrath on his son Jesus instead of you. That's it, there is no other choice. As Christians, when we hear these true accusations of our enemy, we remember that Jesus has paid for those sins. We remember that Jesus has suffered and died for those sins. We need not be haunted by them, but rejoice in the forgiveness we have because of Jesus. And then he wasn't done. As if that's not enough. He propitiated the wrath of God. Then He was resurrected. And then He went to heaven. And He's not just up there twiddling His thumbs. That's not the ministry of Jesus Christ right now. He's not just twiddling His thumbs. Waiting for God the Father to wrap this all up. When are you going to wrap this up, Father? It's getting old. You said you were going to come soon. <laughs> it's been a while. What is He doing right now? He's our advocate. He's our advocate. Whenever an accusation comes against us, Jesus advocates for us on behalf of his shed blood, his propitiatory sacrifice. So you see how the accusations of the enemy are fought? Jesus doesn't deny this truth. God does not deny the truth of your sinfulness, of my sinfulness. We don't have to concoct some fable about our goodness and self-righteousness before God. We completely accept and agree with what the Bible says, with what our enemy even says about our sinfulness against God. But we remember also that we are in Christ. And what is Jesus doing as our advocate? You're right. These are sinners. But they are sinners in me. And the life I've lived is on their behalf. And the death that I have died is on their behalf. They belong to me. Where I go, they go. Including Eternity with God in heaven. And so we only overcome the evil one in that way if the word of God is abiding in us, which is why John says in verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. What did you all hear from the beginning? What was the first truth you had to hear? You had to know you had to believe for you to become a Christian. The Gospel. He says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So another way of answering that question, how do we triumph over the accusation of Satan? It's really simple. Believe the Gospel until you die. That is it. Believe the gospel until you die. That is those in Romans 12 who conquered the evil one, the accuser who was accusing them night and day. How did they conquer him? By keeping their testimony. What is their testimony? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The gospel. Let that abide in you. Accusation. And then his second work is temptation. We are strong to overcome the evil one, strong to overcome his accusation, and strong to overcome his temptation. We're tempted. We're tempted by the dragon all the time. All the time. By him, by the world, our own sinfulness. He's behind it all. A temptation. It's a major tactic he uses. Now in your Bible, in the New Testament, when you read the word tempt and you read the word test, being tempted by Satan, being tested by God, same word. Same word. It means that anytime there's a temptation in front of you, there is a sinful, wicked motive that your enemy has in that. And there is a good and pure motive that your God has in that. And that is that your faith would be tested, would be refined, that you'd find the way out, that you would depend on him, that you would lean on him, that you'd learn to overcome the evil one by the word of God abiding in you. It's a test to sharpen your faith, to hone your faith, to strengthen your faith. The enemy does not have that motive. His motive is to trip you up. His motive is to steal you from God. And we're faced with temptations over and over again. They're what I would call little temptations and big temptations. Not to say there's little sins, and big sins so much, but there's little temptations to do immoral behavior and there's big temptations to abandon God. There's little temptations that we face every day where we're lured by something. I want to do something. It's not good. I shouldn't do it. I shouldn't want to do it. Sometimes you give in to the temptation. Sometimes you don't. You're tempted to immoral behavior. Then there's big temptation. There's big tests. Where the temptation is to walk away from God. This is when you get diagnosed with cancer. You think of that as a temptation? It is. A test from God. Certainly, His hand is behind it to test your faith, to discipline you, to conform you into the image of His Son. Good, pure motives for your good. There's an enemy behind it as well. The temptation is to walk away from God. Pain presents temptation. Suffering Family strife, divorce, wayward children, loss of a job, natural disaster, being abandoned. All of these are great temptations, aren't they? Who will you turn to? Well, how does Satan work in those? Remember what he did in the garden? He lied. John 8 says he's the father of lies. He's always lying. He's always trying to get us to interpret life and interpret circumstances wrongly. And the fight is that the Word of God would abide in us so that we would see things truthfully. Oh, you got cancer, did you? God is bad. He doesn't love you. He's not interested in your good. How is Cancer for your good, my friend. You say God is sovereign. You say God is exhaustively in control of all things. Those of you who believe in the exhaustive sovereignty of God, your enemy will remind you of that doctrine when pain comes into your life. And the lie that will accompany it is is this. First, the truth. You know, God's hand is behind this. You believe that, don't you? Don't forget that doctrine. His hand is behind. You lost the job. God's hand is behind it. Your marriage is falling apart. God's hand is behind that. But then a lie, not truth. God is bad. He doesn't love you. Friends, how will you fight that battle? How will you overcome the evil one? I can tell you this, you will not fight and you will not overcome the evil one if no truth from God abides in you. If the word of God does not abide in you, you will cave. You will buckle. He lied to Adam and Eve in the garden. God had loved them, blessed them, given them so much, one rule, one tree. And Satan came and told him, God is bad. God is bad. And then the second lie he always uses, sin is better. God is bad and sin is better. God's bad. He's trying to ruin your fun. Doesn't want you to be a king like him. You should take the crown, assert yourself. Let's start a rebellion. Let's start a coup. You can do this. You could be your own gods. You want to be like God? Eat the fruit. What did they do? Said, well, looks good. This guy makes a lot of sense. Let's do it. And there's the pattern. Two lies he always comes back to. God is bad. Sin is better. The truth is that God is good. And the truth is that sin is not better. Jesus is always better. Do some of you see that working out in your life when you're tempted and when you sin? Have you been able to slow down in your mind the steps to sin enough to where you actually see your mind warping and believing lies? Now, some of you may just be so deep in sin and so habitually sinful that you're just automatically sinning and there's really not much thought that goes into it, which is not a good thing. But some of you, there's premeditated, there's voluntary, there's thought out giving in to sin. The temptation is there and it resides for a bit, moments or hours or days. And the word of God abides in you and you battle and you deal well. But then there comes a point where you give in. And have you been able to see the truth of what happens before you give in? Because, friends, it's this. You believe the lies of the dragon. You know what? Sin is better. I need this. I need to do this. God is wrong. God is not right. I don't have the strength. I can't resist. I have to have this. I'm going to do this. You see the thoughts? You're not a robot. We think and reason our way into wickedness. Every time. Friends, slow down and see now the importance of the Word of God abiding in us. We have nothing else to arm ourselves with. We have nothing else to arm ourselves with John 8:32 And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John 17:17 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We overcome the evil one every day as the word of God abides in us and we believe it. We believe the gospel the gospel is not something we believe once and move on from which is why martin luther said the gospel's like a stick and god beats you into his kingdom with it and drives you all the way to heaven with it the gospel over and over and over and over again. What's the biblical precedence for going back to the gospel over and over and over again? Well, John tells us in chapter 2 verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Do you remember how you got saved? You remember what rattled your soul? You remember what caused your spiritual eyes to pop open in the middle of the night? You remember what just wrecked you in a good way? The gospel. Don't let what you heard from the beginning disappear. Rather, let it abide in you. So, all of that leading to one conclusion, one application. Real simple. Read your Bible more. That's it. That's all, at least from my perspective in crafting this sermon, is my case to you for reading your Bible more. So that the Word of God would abide in us. So that we would be strong. So that we would be able to overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. Thank you for giving us concrete truth about your universe, about us, and most importantly, about you. And thank you for sending Your Spirit so that we could know this truth and not just hear it read it, but to know it deep down in our hearts, deeply in our minds and deeply in our souls, that we would know this truth and this truth would set us free. It is not people that set us free. It is not experiences that set us free. It is not our accomplishments that set us free. It is not our reputations that set us free. It is the truth of your glorious gospel by which we have been set free. So God, please continue to sanctify us now by your truth. And may we be a people in whom your word abides.